0: Well, good morning, everyone. Um, It feels like winter is finally arriving, doesn't it? This morning when you woke up, it was a little snappy in the air. Um, It was fascinating to think about uh, this being a Sunday in Advent where we reflect on peace um, at the same time that Nelson Mandela has passed, right? Because there was so much reflection on what peace looks like and whether peace can be achieved and who are the types of people who are peace bringers and peacemakers um, and it struck me, as as I was very loosely following the news, I got um, a little snowed under by work, so I, I was kind of skimming the headlines. But it struck me that often when um, the church particularly thinks about peace, what we think about are places in conflict. And that's right and good, right? Because um, the world is filled with conflict. Um, all it, I like to think of the New York Times and CNN.com, which is my home page when I open up my browser as God's multi-billion dollar attempt to get me prayer requests in real time. Right, Because you just turn page after page, and what you hear about are stories of the brokenness of the world. Um, just last night, around midnight, as I was uh, polishing up the sermon, uh, there was a story of a Wycliffe missionary, um, an indigenous uh, leader in the Central African Republic who was killed as he was trying to leave Bangui because of the, the conflict that's occurring there. And people are saying, um, that could be a genocide at the level of a Rwanda-like genocide again. right? You have much of the Muslim world in turmoil. Um, you have the, the cities of the United States uh, where um, deaths occur uh, frequently, and senselessly, and pointlessly. right? Um, uh, more of the world knows turmoil than knows peace. And it's telling as you look at our description of peace so often all we would ask for is just the absence of conflict. Um, If people would just stop fighting, we think, man, that would be enough. And what's striking though, is as you dig into the scriptural understanding what peace looks like, and I think Mary's song uh, digs into that, uh, God desires so much more than just the absence of conflict. Right, I mean, we've all been in family situations where um, there's no conflict, but there's a chilly silence, and we realize there's something missing right? What, when, when the scriptures use the language of peace, um, they're talking about not just the absence of conflict, but the actual flourishing of people and of cultures and of societies, of actual a renewal of creation that brings life wherever it goes, right? Those are the great images from Isaiah that you reflect on over and over again during this Advent season, right? When um, uh, uh, swords shall be beaten in plowed shares, when um, the lion and the lamb lie down when a children's play. The servants that all of creation once again flourishes, and it's interesting that as you study Mary's song, what you begin to find is how um, peace is designed to break out into the world. And I was reflecting, as I said, a lot on this uh, with the death of Nelson Mandela. because I think history provides a helpful parallel that we'll touch on at various points as we talk, but. I'm going to um, cheat a little, because as I was reflecting on Mary's song, I realized the paragraph before where, she, uh, where we pick up the story where I believe you left off last week actually sets it up. Right. So the context is this. Um, this young woman, Mary, from a pretty obscure family in a pretty obscure village in a pretty obscure part of the Roman Empire, um, who seems to have no particularly great connections, though she is engaged to be married, all of a sudden the angel Gabriel appears to her and just disturbs her. Um, with both his presence and his words. Uh, Greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you, right? And Mary responds, I think with, um, um, or Luke, I think describes it with great understanding, Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting that uh, this might be. And the angel goes, don't be afraid. And promises this amazing thing that the Lord will overshadow her and she will actually conceive and bear a son through whom God will um, accomplish all of his promises. That he'll restore the kingdom to David. That peace will finally break up for the people of Israel. And um, Mary, uh, such the unexpected choice, responds with words that I reflect on um, year after year when I get to this season. Um. In verse 38 of Luke chapter 1, I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be, may, may your word to me be fulfilled. Or um, in other translations, may it be to me as you have said. Now, if you're a young woman, right, in your early teens, um, in a culture where stoning people who uh, got pregnant before they were married, right, who'd obviously been having um, illicit relationships, uh, this is not good news. And so she takes off, and I want to pick up this story at verse 39, because I think what happens next is actually both God's mercy as well as God's um, framing of the situation. It's really the second half of what Gabriel started. So look at uh, Luke 1, uh, beginning of verse 39. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to the town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zachariah's home and greeted Elizabeth, who was a cousin of hers. And just prior to the announcement that Mary was going to bear a child, there's another miraculous birth where... Um, A formerly barren couple is promised a son will come uh, who will be great and who will usher forth um, news about the coming of the messiah and when mary when elizabeth heard mary's greeting the baby leapt in elizabeth's womb and elizabeth was filled with the holy spirit and in a loud voice she exclaimed blessed are you among women and blessed is the child you will bear which must be a frightening thing right you're coming nobody knows you're expecting yet you walk to your cousin's house Um, 70-ish miles away. You've been on the road three days and you go, hi, is anyone home? And all of a sudden your friend just bursts out, blessed are you among women and the child in your womb. And you're like, shh, like nobody knows about that yet. Right? I mean, it's startling and a little disturbing. But blessed are you among women and blessed is the child you'll bear. And then your cousin says this remarkable thing, but why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. Blessed is she who has believed the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. And it's an amazing kind of a little passage, right? Because you get all three persons of the Trinity um, jammed together. Um, Elizabeth hears Mary's voice, the Holy Spirit fills her. She identifies the baby to come as her Lord. And then refers to the Lord God Almighty as the one who has blessed Mary for having listened to his words and responded with those words, I am the Lord's servant, may it be to me as you have said. Right? You get a little snapshot of everything that Luke is about to show you through the rest of the Gospels right there. What's startling about this passage is how unexpected Elizabeth's blessing of Mary is. Not just because she shouldn't know and it's the Holy Spirit emerging. Right? What's partially startling or very startling if you're reading this in context is, In the culture of the time, the higher status person never blesses the lower status person. In fact, when um, a lower status person would approach the house as Mary did, what she should have done is greeted Elizabeth and offered a blessing to Elizabeth. You actually watch this in um, Ruth chapter uh, 2, where when Boaz gets to the field, his workers bless him. Um, and then he blesses them in return. And so it's the lower status person who blesses the higher status person first. But in this case, Mary just gets a greeting out. Hi, is anybody home? It's me, Mary. And Elizabeth, the higher status person, blesses her, right? Elizabeth has everything. She has a husband, for one, right? She has a Levite husband who ser- has served um, offering sacrifices at the altar. To- She's um, reasonably well respected. Their crowd gathers and celebrates with her when the news of the pregnancy has arised. um, She and her husband are both Levites. She has everything. And Mary, young, unmarried, now we know, pregnant, um, coming from the backwater, really has nothing. And yet, in the crazy economy of God, Elizabeth is the one who blesses Mary. right? Um, And what I love is how careful Elizabeth is, because what Elizabeth points out is, I'm not blessing you because now that you've become higher status on your own merits, Mary. I mean, she does say, um, blessed are you among women, but it's because of blessed will be the child that you bear. And this isn't kind of just a patriarchal thing of like women only have status because they're about to have children. There's something unique about your child, Mary, Elizabeth seems to say, and because of who your child is, your status has completely changed because the child that you will bear will completely relativize the way that we understand status social importance and who is great and who is small right that's what jesus is getting at when he talks about oh did you come to see john in another one of the gospels and he said yeah he was greater than every other prophet who came before why because he was closest to me he actually saw in his flesh what all the other prophets longed to see and part of what happens when jesus enters the world right is all of um, the social conventions begin to change. Status begins to change. Importance begins to change. It has nothing to do with wealth. It has nothing to do with genealogy, clan, or culture. It has nothing to do with status. In the kingdom economy, God, everything depends on how you understand and who you understand Jesus to be and how you respond to him. Um, and God seems to delight in using somebody's unexpected and Unusual as Mary to accomplish his purposes, and I know Dick um, talked about this last week, right that it's often the unexpected, unworthy um, lower class marginalized person that God somehow seems to pluck out of obscurity to use for himself and what Elizabeth points out at the end of her um, of her greeting to Mary is um, the the cause, the reason why God chose chose to bless Mary. Um, it's not just because she's marginalized. It's not that God is perverse in that way. And it's not just because of she's of low status. But in fact, it's blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. Right? That, there, um, that God delights in choosing the most unexpected, in part, uh, because of the way that Mary approaches his word, which is, may it be to me as you have said. Um, that's what Elizabeth points out. And it's through that posture. What the Lord said is true, I'm going, to be, I'm going to trust in it that opens her up and allows her to be useful to God in that moment. Now, having said that, God does seem to delight, doesn't he, in choosing the unexpected, the least um, prominent, the least, um, the words escape me at this point, uh, the least convincing communicators of his truth. I mean, you think through the Old Testament, right? Um, it's not the eldest, it's often the youngest. It's Jacob and not Esau. It's Joseph, not the preceding 10 brothers. Um, it's, um, it's Israel rather than all the other nations. And God makes it really plain to Israel in Deuteronomy because he points out, why did I choose you? Now, I, being the sarcastic person I am, I often project my own voice into the Bible and so you really have to watch it. I sometimes think God's going, why did I choose you? Like, really? Um, but I think he was asking more rhetorically, trying to convince them. He goes, were you the greatest of all the nations? They were great empires I could have chosen for myself. Egypt was doing fantastic things when your parents uh, and great ancestors were doing nothing. In Mesopotamia, they were entire city-states that were organized and had a land already, people who had fantastic descendants. <clears throat> I chose you because you were small. I chose you because you were basically unnoticeable. I chose you because that way you will know that I chose you, right? It's exactly what my friend um, who adopted a child uh, told me one day. He, he and his wife had been um, struggling with infertility for years, um, been all through all sorts of treatments, and then finally decided, you know, what God is calling us to do is to adopt. And so um, they adopted a child and as so frequently happens in those cases, um, as soon as the adoption was finalized, they became biologically pregnant. And I don't know what it is about adoption, but there is something um, profound that I think God does, both to delight us, um, to humor us, but also to say, like, you've been open to receive a child, and so let me give you a child. But um, he said, You know, I, I have both of these children now, they're roughly the same age, and he said, My adopted child has an immense advantage over my biological child. And, you know, because everybody always asks, so how do you feel about your adopted child now that you have this biological child? He said, My adopted child has the deep security knowing she was chosen. We planned for her, we longed for her, and we decided to make her ours. My biological child, in the end, has no idea whether this was a choice or just a careless evening. (laughs) Right? She could be an accident, but my adopted child knows. We worked for her. We chose her. She is our beloved out of a decision of our heart. Now, she said, he said, of course, I love my biological child at the same level I love my adopted child. But the one thing my adopted child never has to doubt was was she chosen? Was she wanted? Did we attempt? Did we work to make her ours? Right. Um, and I would and never thought of it that way. But I think that's what God seems to get at, right, when he goes, why did I choose you, Israel, the most depressing group of people I've ever worked with, right, this small little tribe that I'm going to have to make a great nation and I'm going to do it just quite almost in spite of you rather than because of you, so that you would know you were loved, so that you would know you were chosen. Right? I think God delights in making these unexpected choices in part because it's an act of grace every single time. It's not necessarily because of the great worthiness of the marginalized um, and the low status and the poor, but it's because he, by doing so, he says, so you never doubt it's an act of grace on my part. It has nothing to do with your virtue. It has nothing to do with your status, nothing to do with your resources. It's all love. And it's that kind of love, I think, that brings us incredible delight in this Easter season. Um, I often struggle with my deep sense of unworthiness. It, it's a combination of being eldest child, a Chinese-American, uh, brought up by somewhat tiger-ish parents, and um, growing up in the United States, right? I mean, you just always have somebody to compare yourself to that is better. In my case, it was the perfect cousins, but we won't go there, because then <laughs> I would need peeling prayer before this was all over. Um, I love the fact that no matter how great we achieve, what God keeps reminding us, it has nothing to do with your achievement. It has nothing to do with what you accomplish for me. It's an act of love on my part. Receive it this Christmas, he seems to be saying. Um, It's in part what I love most, I think, about the Matthew genealogy. I was just reading it in my scripture reading the other day. Um, And um, if 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 you're one of those people like me who generally just thinks, especially once you get to Chronicles, and you just think, oh, Lord have mercy, it's another genealogy. Um, the Matthew one is delightful because Matthew goes to stops at no expense to introduce every aberration possible into the genealogy of Jesus, right? You have prostitutes and women who um, were sinned against, um, you have uh, aliens and foreigners, you have everybody. And Matthew um, doesn't even try to pretend it's not there, right? He talks about it was. Um, Solomon, who was the uh, you know uh, son of Bathsheba, who used to be the wife of Uriah, I mean, he just goes all out to point out to you who these people are. And I love the fact, I love the fact that it's this bizarre, motley collection of people that God chooses to bring together to say, this is going to be the biological family through whom the Messiah will come. Right? Anyways, so um, it's beautiful. And then. It's at that point, then, you get to Mary's song, right? And, it, and I just wanted to say, Elizabeth's introduction of Mary would be incredibly comforting to Mary, wouldn't it, at that point? And that's what I think launches her into the song. Mary must have been worrying and wondering, so OK, I'm going to trust God. I'm not going to be pregnant. Joseph may abandon me. My family may choose to stone me. I've lost everything. I've lost everything by choosing to believe Jesus right now. And she walks in and says, hello, is anybody home? It's me, Mary. And then all of a sudden, in parallel language to what Gabriel said, she hears, oh, you who are blessed for trusting the Lord, welcome to my home. Right? How that just must have settled her soul. And from that place of confidence, all of a sudden the song bursts forth. And we mostly know it as the Magnificat from the first line, uh, the first word of the Latin, translation of it because that's how um, the church in the west heard it for so many years but listen again um, to the incredible overturning of expectations that mary begins to describe in this song and how she reflects on it in her own life and then projects it out into how god is going to work in the world my soul glorifies the lord and my spirit rejoices in god my savior for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He's performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their innermost thoughts. He's brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He's filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever justice. He promised our ancestors. Mary first begins to testify to this incredible overturning in her own life, right? And I love how she identifies God. God is my Lord and my savior. He is the one who um, at his command I'm going to respond because I am his servant. And he's my savior. So as he puts me into places of danger, I have nothing to fear. He is the one who will supply everything that I need, right? It's this very comprehensive picture of who God is and what he will do, both in commanding and in preserving, that she says, um, the Lord has done these great things because he has paid attention. He's been mindful of the humble state of his servant. So she's identified who God is. He's my Lord and Savior, and I'm his humble servant. And it's because I am his humble servant that he's, I've been able to be useful for, to him. And it's because I am useful to him, people will call me blessed. Um, It's not that again, she was of particularly notable status, but um, the gospels are consistent, right? As we approach humbly in a servant-like posture toward God and his commands, we become blessed. In Jesus' words when um, he's confronted by Mary later in life, when Mary and his, uh, his brothers think he's gone a little crazy in Mark 3, he looks at Mary, stay outside the door, and people go, you know, your mom and your brother here, they think you're insane, they want to take you home for a little bit of rest, Jesus. I think what Jesus does, he looks at his mom and his brothers and he asks this terrible question to any family, who is my mother, and my brother, and my sisters? Then he looks around the room. The people who obey the word of God are my mother and my brothers and my sisters. And I bet he looked back at his family again at the door and made the challenge, right? Um, what are the, what's the great thing that Mary is praising God for? For the mighty th- uh, one has done great things for me. Um, he's noticed his poor servant and then chosen to use her. And then she goes on to then predict the same kind of relationship with God for others that she herself has, right? Um, she describes these great social reverses, Reversals predicated on those who fear him from generation to generation. So, if you approach God in that same sort of way, um, with awe and respect, then the humble will be exalted, and the hungry will be fed, the proud will be scattered, and the rulers will be brought down. And what what's distinct? What's the distinguishing characteristic? If you're hungry and you're humble, is that you're resourceless and you're dependent. You're a humble servant because you rely on grace. You rely on the good news and the provision of your Lord, rather than what you can provide for yourself, you aren't in control, right? That's what marks those who are hungry and poor, and those who are servants by choice, is the one thing you don't have is control. You're dependent on the orders of your master, or you're dependent on um, the generosity of others, but when you have nothing or choose to live as if you had nothing, no control, you're actually then available for God. And I think this is really good news for those of us today who feel powerless among the powerful, right? As you think about the resources that you have or you think, man, I don't have the skills, I don't have the aptitude, I don't necessarily even have the passion or the interest. um, I don't have the resources I want. This is tremendous news. Uh, Your actual lack of control puts you in exactly the right posture to be useful to God. Um, The challenge, of course, is that most of us aren't really powerless if we're Americans at all. And we certainly aren't resourceless, if only in an absolute sense compared to the rest of the world. For many of us here, and I won't say for all because I don't know your individual stories, but for many of us, um, our areas of greatest stress are caused by the superabundance of our blessings, right? Um, I reflect on that every time I try to figure out where to send my children to school. Um, it's a crazy question that um, obsesses my wife and I living as we do in New York City. <clears throat> and I'm only asking the question because I've been so super abundantly blessed with options that I could actually make a different choice for my child if I chose. Right, if, uh, if you're a college student or thinking about college and you're trying to go, where should I go to school and what should my major be and what should I do with my life? Um, the vast majority of the world never gets to ask that question. If you've ever struggled at a job and thought, I'm really unhappy here, should I choose something else and can I find something else? Um, for most of the world, you don't ask the question, am I happy or unhappy at this job? You're just grateful for the chance to earn maybe enough money to feed your family for that day. Um, we all managed to get here. We aren't trapped at our homes. I mean, right, um, as Americans living in this culture and this society in this particular community, Um, Some of us may feel very living on the edge and on the margins, but in fact, we have tremendous control. We have tremendous power compared to most of our brothers and sisters in the world. And so this is where Mary's word gets disturbing because it's easy for many of us to read this and go, yes, the lowly and weak will be raised up. Those who are hungry will be fed. The challenge is most of us are probably closer to the rich and the powerful in many of our spheres of influence, whether at work or in our neighborhoods, we actually are more like the rulers than not. And how do we therefore then avoid um, being scattered or brought down? It comes back to, I think, right, that posture. I am the Lord's servant, where you begin to release control, where you begin to release resources, uh, where you let go. Um, and it's so hard to do. And I've said it here before, but I'll say it again, because this is the demon I confront. right? Everything in our culture, everything that we've been trained to do is designed to make us safe and to put us in a place of control. In the end, right, um, we encourage students to go to school, not because we want them to be brighter or flourish as human (laughs) beings, but because that way you can get a good job so you can be in control of your economic future. Um, it's why we think so hard about planning for retirement, not necessarily so that we won't be a burden to family or friends, but because we would like to be in control of how we spend and how we live, right? It's how, I mean, it's about retirement planning, it's about insurance, all, everything in our society, so much of it's designed to help us feel like we're in control. Um, even to the crazy level, right, we control the air that we breathe, the temperature we breathe it at, I mean, every level. We control how we smell, how we look, how we present ourselves, <clears throat> um, One way of experiencing walking through Target where I did my shopping yesterday was look at how many of those products are designed to control the future for you, or allow you to control the future, and to control dirt and odor. And I mean, right, the entire store um, outside of food products is just an issue of control. I'd like to control how I look so that I can present myself to you a certain way. I control how I clean my house, right? I wonder if one of the Christmas disciplines for us as a church is to, how do we pursue spiritual disciplines that allow us to recognize we aren't in control? To unloosen the grabby way that we approach the world and pry open our fingers sufficiently that the Lord could take if he would, and he, if he gave, we were capable to receive. I suspect that's why the church over the centuries forces itself into a Sabbath rhythm. Because there is something about saying one day out of seven, I just will not work because the universe, my job, my future doesn't depend only on me. I will cease because the Lord will provide. It's one of the reasons I have a friend who's in the middle of a 40-day fast, right? And there's nothing that shows you how desperately um, compulsive we are about controlling our food and what we eat than forcing ourselves to stop. So she's on a 40-day, like, largely vegan kind of Daniel fast. And she said, I'm, I'm just shocked at how much I obsess about meat and dairy and sugar. And oh, those processed foods that come in plastic bags. right? Um, but she realizes how desperately she wants to be in control of her food. Um, I think it's why um, giving is so critical to us as a church. Um, why I love the idea of giving Tuesday and I just wish giving Tuesday preceded Black Friday So that the first choice we made is how much we should give before we decide how much we will buy um, Right and everybody points out the incredible paradox of Black Friday You've spent the day before thanking God for everything that he's given you in Black Friday agonizing over how much more you would like um, How can you pursue these disciplines? to let go of control so that you are the humble servant who's available for God. Let me end with this one other thought. Um, This incredible upturning that Mary's talking about, right? Um, Those who are low being raised, the rulers being um, brought down, the proud being scattered, the humble um, being exalted. there's another word for this. There's a word that summarizes what this looks like in scripture, and that word would be justice. Right, what Mary is really praying for, what Mary's expecting the Messiah to accomplish is an overturning of the world system so that it's just. So that those who are hungry, who are actually gonna be fed, those who are ruling and arrogant will actually be brought to justice and brought low to their appropriate place. Um, that everybody would be treated with dignity and respect, right? That Part of what she's expecting when the Messiah returns is not just the reconciliation of individuals to God, but the actual renewal of a people of God, the people of Israel, to their proper place, so that they would no longer be oppressed by foreign rulers. And then by implication that all people would begin to live in a more flourishing kind of environment. right? Because part of what um, Isaiah does and Revelation does and the gospel miracles all seem to point out is it's not just saving people that God's after, but it's the renewal of the creation that he loves. Because the bigger story of scripture is God created this uh, perfect universe, and human beings rebelled and then destroyed everything about it so that human beings are at enmity with one another and with the creation that he's made. And then by Jesus entering into the world, God is re-entering his creation to remake it. So that he, of course, wants to uh, reconcile people to himself, but Ephesians points out he's also reconciling people back to one another, so the divisions cease. And as you watch the miracles that Jesus does, in part, they are signs because they are signs of him saying, I'm reestablishing my reign and rule over creation. Storms are now going to be stilled. Those who are hungry are going to be fed. At this party, there's going to be ample and beautiful amounts of wine, because there's going to be human flourishing. Jesus seems to be pushing for peace between people and God, and also peace back into all of human society, which is more than the absence of conflict, it's actually the returning of flourishing. So the dead come back to life. Those who are deaf begin to hear. The poor are actually being fed as you begin to see the church work that out in practice. And all of it coheres as God declares who he is and what he intends to accomplish. Um, Let me suggest, finally, um, it's probably when people come to the end of all they have, and they realize they aren't in control, that they're given an opportunity to be agents of that kind of peace-bringing, justice-oriented restoration that God is aiming for. Uh, it's, it's in really that context that I was thinking most about uh, Nelson Mandela's life and death. Um, isn't that what everybody points out uh, for Mandela and the amazing way that he brought a country together out of chaos? Um, there was something about 27 years in prison after years of political activism, right? It being part of a very tumultuous struggle for justice uh, against apartheid in South Africa. The ability to walk out of 27 years where mean, think about losing 27 years of your life, Uh, the children you actually never got to see or know, the way your friends and family have moved on in various ways, that you've become a symbol of their struggle. I mean, think about um, what it would be like to be in solitary confinement for year after year at a time exiled from the very thing that you care most about, to be able to walk out and then to actually be the agent through whom the country doesn't further fragment and doesn't merely just accomplish democratic um, elections, but actually then pursues truth and reconciliation, where sins are confessed in open court, and then forgiveness is offered because they don't flinch from seeing the sin. And how that's knit together a country that still has tremendous problems, still hasn't achieved all that it could, uh, but certainly has experienced far more of the flourishing that God desires than it would have if he'd come out angry, claiming power for himself, and acting with aggression. I'll end with this then. What's the ultimate model of God taking somebody who is uh, low, marginalized, and broken, and then raising them up? Well, wouldn't that be our Lord Jesus Christ himself? Right? Philippians 2 describes it so beautifully and so eloquently. Um, Jesus Christ, though he is of the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but instead took on the form of a servant and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, that at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess to the glory of God the Father. And this is the kind of mystery that Mary begins to invite us to participate in, right? She actually says, look, the reason I will be blessed, the reason my soul glorifies the Lord is I've experienced in small part what Paul it encourages us to grasp in Philippians to let your attitude be like that of Christ Jesus. Because I was the Lord's servant and followed what he said, he's going to use me, and I believe he will do the same for all the peoples of the earth if we would release control, if we would uh, listen and believe. And then the low will be exalted. Those who are great will be brought low. Justice will occur. Peace will break out. The absence of conflict and human flourishing, and God will be glorified. And then... God will be glorified as he deserves to be. And every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. Mary's song um, is so radical and so challenging that um, in many totalitarian governments, the church was not allowed to preach it. And if we dwell in it, it's radical, not because it's political, but in the end, it points us to Jesus. And then when Jesus infects the system, people and politics begin to change. And that's part of um, the radical unsettling as well as the radical beauty of Christmas. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, um, would you give us Mary's um, attitude toward your word and to you? Um, We are the Lord's servant. May it be to us as you have said, and then would you use us as instruments of peace, instruments of hope love and joy in this season so that the um, true things about the church these true things of the church would be far more marked um, than the church's failures and the church's arrogances and the church's um, ignorances that we saw in that life changer cafe um, video it would be people marked by your presence we pray in christ's name amen